This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. In this episode, we're talking to Andy Tho, a digital consulting leader focused on Web3, blockchain, and the Wild West that is NFTs and crypto. Andy helps demystify this new frontier in digital technology, and we dig deep into its opportunities, challenges, and the potential future we can all create with it. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Customer Obsessed. Eric, how's it going? Another episode. This is our first episode of the of the fresh new year here, right? Well, that is true, but we've been going strong for a while now, so another episode just rolled off the tongue. But yes, first episode of 2023. I have a New Year's resolution. I think we both do. We haven't talked about this yet, but I'm going to... I'm gonna. You're going to set it for both of us. Okay. Um, I'm going to project my New Year's resolution on you. All right. Okay. I'm ready. We're going to be a little more consistent this year with our drops. I was a little distracted last year, but I will not be distracted this year. I love it. I am on board with this resolution. But we need guests. We need guests. I think the toughest thing about doing this is finding great guests. That's true. So anybody who's listening, if you have recommendations for people that you think would be great on here, let us know. We're always looking for cool people to bring on. So one thing I do have to also talk about quickly, and this is a little bit of a plug. We should probably charge you for this, Aaron. I might actually (laughs) kill you for this. Our family had the opportunity to participate in a stargazing exercise with Stargazer in December in Joshua Tree. Yeah. It was awesome. First of all, for those of you out there that have never been to Joshua Tree, what an experience, what an amazing place and just different too. Like I've been to a lot of national parks and love to spend my time in the outdoors, do a lot of traveling out West, but Joshua Tree was just unique in what it is and and what it represents and totally uncommercialized. Like once you're inside the park, it's just a park. You are in nature and uh, really, really, really peaceful incredible place. I was so excited when you all came out and we did the hike in the morning and then you guys did your thing and then met up with Adam for your stargazing tour. And I'm so glad that you loved it. And then we got to share it with you because it is special. It's also an incredible place to climb. Mm -hmm. It's not extreme. I mean, I'm sure it can be, but we're not climbers as a family, like anything but, but we climbed rocks and it was really cool and took some amazing pictures and saw the sunset and then got to see the entire universe, which was just an extraordinary experience. So thank you, Aaron. You have a great business there. Thank you so much, Eric. It really means a lot to hear that from you in particular, because you have built a lot of really amazing things too. So thank you. You know, I'll relate it to the podcast too. So as I think many of you know, Aaron runs a stargazing business. And, you know, you sit back and go, all right, what kind of business is that? Well, There's a certain amount of equipment that she has to have very powerful telescopes so we can see the universe certain time of day. I don't know what you have to go through with the park to go do it there. Or if you can just show up, you don't have to talk about that. No, there's definitely permitting involved. Like we have an annual permit and we have reporting that we have to do for all of the visitors that come in. And we have to let them know that we're going to be there on a particular evening. So there's there's a bit that goes into that too. And we all had to show up at a certain time and you had 
amenities for us where we could sit and watch and you had some food and hot chocolate and it was pretty cold. You had blankets and I'm not going to remember his name. Um, Adam. Adam, who, what do you call him? Like he's like a Sherpa or something? No, like, no he's, what? he's your sky guide. That's what we call he him. He's our sky guide. So Adam was our sky guide and he was just incredible. And, you know, like any great business, he is so passionate and knowledgeable about the universe and could talk for hours about every constellation, every moon, every star, how long it's been there, how big it is, if it's still there, how long it takes light to travel back to us. And he was so passionate and knowledgeable about his topic that we were just fully engrossed the entire time, even though it was like 18 degrees outside. So, you know, note to self and, and all of your businesses out there, the people that you have on the front lines, no matter what they're doing, whether they're selling or delivering or they're in customer service or they're in engineering, like anyone that, that is customer facing, if they don't have a passion for what they're doing, it's going to come through. If they do have a deep passion, your customers will be engaged and they'll buy more products. Because the next time we're on the West Coast, we're going stargazing again, for sure. And I'm telling everyone about it. Yes, I love it. And yeah, I completely agree with you. We are really fortunate to have such a passionate, committed team. Because we have Adam, who's our chief sky guide. And then we have another employee, Caitlin, who is just as entertaining and enthusiastic and knowledgeable about this. Um, but they both, you know, they're talking about the same stuff, but the beauty of this is they, they also give very different shows, you know, mm -hmm. because their personalities are different and they feel free to bring that to the tour as well. Like Caitlin used to be a stand-up comedian. And so she's, she's a performer and she's very funny. And so she brings that element to her tours a little bit as well, which is really cool. Oh, wow. We're coming back for Caitlin. That's yeah, awesome. yeah, you should just you should experience Caitlin <laughs> next time. <laughs> you know, I also have to say, like, you know, we're a family of five. My kids are all out of the house now. A couple are in college. One's out of college. We don't get together nearly as much as we used to. We all have our challenges in life. And you go out there and stare at the universe for a few hours and learn about it. It makes all of our little challenges and life's little inconveniences seem extremely trivial. So it was really therapeutic for all of us. It was awesome. Oh, I love hearing that. And yeah, that, I'm glad that you experienced what they call the overview effect, where yeah, you are able to take a step back and look at the universal picture, let's say. It, I definitely find it helps me too. And I get the benefit of getting to go out all the time. So <laughs> yeah, well, and the universe is free. Yeah. It's incredible and it's free. How many things in life can you just like learn about and stare at and it's not like hitting you up for something? Pretty cool. All right. So let's talk about today's guest. Yes. All right. I'll let Andy, you do the honors of introducing him. Andy Tho, longtime Blue Wolf employee, early, early Blue Wolf employee. Andy uh, came into our group, I don't know, probably around 2004 or five or something like that. And uh, pretty much almost out of school, worked for the company all the way through the acquisition by IBM, stayed at IBM for several years, um, and recently just left. But really, really interesting guy. And the reason we're having Andy on, other than to bring back an old Blue Wolf friend, who a lot of you will know and recognize, is also because what Andy did when he left IBM, 
is he jumped into this whole world of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and dove in headfirst. For those of you that follow him on social media, LinkedIn, whatever, you'll see that he's learned about how this whole universe works and what it means. And one of the reasons we wanted to have Andy on is, you know, NFTs are obviously closely related to cryptocurrencies and at the base of it all, it, what underlies all of these technologies is blockchain, uh, which you'll hear Andy's a big, big believer in as, as am I. But the timing of this episode to me is interesting because crypto, as I think we all know, is kind of going through this, this winter, if you will. And there's been you know, a lot of negative press and negative news around what cryptocurrencies represent and how they're being managed and whether they're safe and can you trust them. We've obviously had this whole uh, fraudulent activity or accused, how should I say it? He hasn't been convicted. Alleged. Alleged uh, fraudulent activity by FTX and their founder. So, you know, I think when you look at crypto, here's, here's my take on it for all of you out there. And this is just Eric Barrage's opinion. It's not a fad. It's not going to go away. In some form, blockchain, NFTs, cryptocurrencies will emerge as a way that we all transact at some level, as a way that we get things done in our daily lives. There are hundreds of reasons why blockchain is a more secure, scalable, safer way to transact globally. Those have not all been commercialized yet. In fact, very few of them have been. But we'll talk a little bit about that with Andy. And you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that we're all going to be walking around with Bitcoin wallets and that's how we're going to exchange currencies. I'm not making that statement. I don't know. But I do think that in my career, I've seen certain things turn into fads and get a lot of hype around them. And some of them go away permanently. I don't think this is one of them. And I'm not smart enough to tell you exactly how to play it, but... It was great having Andy on and, and, and to hear his opinions and hear his experiences, good and bad, and hopefully learn a little bit more about this global topic. What are you up to now? What are you doing? I keep hearing like different rumors about Andy. I, I check in on you through other people, by the way. You took your career in a diversion a couple of years ago, right? You jumped in hardcore into NFTs. Is that right? That's right. Are you still doing it? You know, it's one of those things that whether you're like actively getting paid for doing work or not, it's just the playground for the curious. And so I am still curious as to where this whole blockchain world moves. Yeah. So this is our crypto episode, Aaron. Yes. And when we first started talking about having Andy come on board, the whole crypto world was in a different spot. Like we've been talking about doing this for like six months, right? Yeah. Yeah, quite a while. And it's been a roller coaster since then. So I'm like a buyer right now. I'm a yeah. buyer. I don't know if it's the right time to buy, but like, what does Jeffrey Moore call it? We're in the trough of disillusionment when it comes to crypto and- In the hype cycle. Yeah. In the hype cycle, we are definitely in the trough. We're in the trough. But like, I know from being in this tech space for my entire career that it's here to stay. Blockchain is definitely here to stay. Crypto is here to stay in some form. I'm not as convinced or knowledgeable about NFTs. So help me understand 
Although like, I'm getting there. Like I have customers that are actually really marketers in particular that feel like this is the way to unlock the value of their brand equity. Is that true? Yeah, hundred percent. There's a digital economy that's manifesting on blockchain. Think of the whole world of finance and media and marketplaces and peer-to-peer value exchange. There's a huge economy being built on blockchain. So there's a ton of different directions we can go with this. But why is that better than the economy that's been built on other technologies? Like I would compare like, I don't know, MasterCard to that, right? Like that's like the old way of transacting, right? Someone's going to buy something. Someone's going to hold the money. Someone's going to take a little bit of risk. It's going to eventually get into the hands of the person that sold the good and everything worked out. Blockchain is a better way of doing that. What you're describing is the currency side. And so in the fungible tokens, you know, the currency, us here in the United States, I think it's a really hard sell. I think anybody that sits here in the United States and says, we should be all doing all of our daily transactions in blockchain is really a bad actor. They are definitely not looking out for the interest of the everybody. They have some sort of weird motive there. Just on the currency side, I do think there are some other nations and countries that don't have a lot of stability and maybe an alternative form of transaction might make sense. But I personally don't follow currencies as much as I follow the unlocks that happen with the NFTs, which is what your clients, the marketers are talking about. So walk us through that. Like, how does that work? So NFTs, non-fungible tokens, another word for those are digital assets. So digital assets will manifest in a lot of different things. The big one that caught everybody's attention was art and collectibles. One of the things that kind of drew me into the space was I have a lot of friends that are in the art space. They are creative directors for Epsilon or creative directors for Google, PwC. I mean, just a lot of like corporate smart marketers, you know, clearly strong creatives. And they, you know, had been doing art on the side and they found themselves at the right place at the right time. And they did incredibly well for themselves in 2021 and the start of 2022, selling their works via NFTs. So these are digital works, they're selling NFTs. That's how ultimately I got involved with this was just through my friend network. I think the question that I tell everybody to ask themselves is, do you think that we're gonna spend more time or less time on the internet? And so the answer to that is probably we're gonna spend more time. And so with that, Do we really have an internet that's built around digital ownership? You have a home in New York. You own that home. There's just a whole economy that lives behind that home. You're doing lending against it. You're doing insurance on it. The same kind of economy lives around fine art. So on the digital asset side, you also have this idea of owning your data. So as consumers, we don't really own our data. When you think about all of the content that people are creating on these social networks, you truly don't own that. That's owned by these walled gardens. And there's a lot of economy that sits behind those walled gardens that makes them as valuable as they are. And so when you have a digital asset that sits on a public ledger, the world ultimately can see that that data is no longer gated and people are no longer monetizing your data to sell best fit ads. There's a whole new movement right now around privacy because 
you know, this idea that if it's on blockchain, anybody can see it. I think there's going to have to be a lot of maturity that comes there because I don't necessarily want the whole world to see all of my assets. I love the idea that I can trade peer to peer in these very low cost marketplaces for some of my digital assets. I love the idea that my digital assets are extensible, meaning that, you know, it's been a long time since video games, but I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and they will eventually get into video games. They already are. And the idea that they're going to spend a lot of time in a single game and they're going to acquire a bunch of status and they're going to acquire a bunch of rewards and a bunch of different assets through that game because that's how games work. That's how they make it sticky. And then I'm stuck in that game. If there's a better creator that comes along and creates a game and allows for more easy portability of those assets into their game, that's a big unlock for the consumer as well. When I tell people about what's different about NFTs, I think it's about the extensibility of a digital asset. I think it's acknowledging the reality that in today's internet, there's not a lot of ownership. It's not possible in today's infrastructure. And that's where uh, blockchain, because blockchain is a shared database amongst a lot of people. Yeah, no, everything on the internet gets ripped off. I actually saw um, the founder of Rolling Stone magazine spoke this last weekend and we went and saw him. Jan Wenner, fascinating guy. And they were asking about publishing and how the internet has affected publishing. And he basically said, you know, the internet's just made everything free and everything gets stolen. And so I don't completely understand how NFTs change that necessarily or how the whole blockchain world changes that. Maybe it does. I also heard someone a couple of years ago say the biggest mistake we made with the internet is we should have charged for it. I think a lot of those paywalls. Well, you're seeing a ton of that, by the way. Like the content I like to get at on the internet is getting harder to find. Or not find, but it's getting harder to get for free. The other thing there, I'm just going to add one thing because I think that it is very incisive and relevant to what we're talking about here. Someone I follow on Twitter, she's a reporter and an activist, and she said, you know, it's no surprise, you know, all of the hard hitting, thoughtful journalism is behind a paywall, but disinformation is free. Why do you think we are where we are? You know, I think you see that just in even in the last year and a half, two years, I think you really see that trending. To your point, I don't think blockchain makes the data less available. And I don't think blockchain makes the disinformation any less. You know, it's not a solve all. No. I do think it will create a, you know, this idea of digital identity and reputation. And, you know, you look at all the bots that exist on Twitter and how that amplifies some of the disinformation. I think with a different internet infrastructure around digital identity, which Arguably, blockchain might play a role there. That's ultimately what Jack Dorsey is trying to do with his TBD project. It's a big problem. And I do think blockchain could play a role there in that campaign because once you have that digital identity that is seen across all of the different social media platforms, you know, you could have some sort of rating protocol. So this idea of an unowned programmable smart contract that would allow reputation scores based on, you know, some sort of system that would be implemented. And, you know, I don't have the answer, but I could definitely see a world where 
that's sounding real Black Mirror right now. <laughs> with the rating system and this black box where you don't know what exactly is going into that, right? When you get into this idea of rating systems and who's controlling this information, who is deciding what's valuable and what's not, what makes you verifiable or valuable or not, you know, you get into re some really, really sticky areas, especially considering, you know, people who have more privilege than others. I mean, take credit scores, for example, just as something that we still use now to rate people all of the time that determines access to a lot of different economic opportunities. I would hate to see something that has so much promise turn into just another way to gatekeep and put up dividing lines. Yeah, 100%. I mean, credit scores is a great example. I have no clue what factors play into my credit score. These programmable systems that I was kind of describing, that's all very transparent. That code sits on the public ledger. Everybody can see what the rules are. You know, kind of going back to the currency thing, it's why people like Ethereum and Bitcoin because it's a rules-based currency. It's not based on what Jerome Powell thinks is the right thing to do with money supply. Right. There's a finite amount of it, right? And it's not just that it's a finite, like the rules to change the system go across an extremely large network of people that have a say in whether it should go or no go. This power isn't controlled at the top. Right. And I would say in addition to the power, it's also the, the reality where this, there's this transparency around all the discussions that are being had and ultimately the fine print on what rules are going to be implemented. Can we talk a little bit more about this idea of how NFTs are going to help people own their own data and how that gets shared? Because I'm still a little hazy on exactly how that is going to work and how the average person could potentially control access to that. So there's definitely a privacy thing with blockchain, like the underpinning of blockchain is the transparency is the is where the you know what makes the technology work so if you think about a blockchain the reason why nobody owns it is because it's a shared platform where everybody can see everything and so that shared visibility is what gives it the trust versus us outsourcing the trust to an entity that's going to say hey i'm going to look over all the books and i'm going to make sure all the transactions are so there's the privacy and blockchain are competing ends. I do think you're seeing like a lot of scale blockchains being put in place, a lot of application-based blockchains where the core person, you know, might have some data that's public and then the, you know, there might be a higher level of data set that's going to be private and specific to that app. I think privacy will be, be a big problem. On the idea of owning your data, it's about portability of data. So because you are a person and you have a bunch of assets, like going back to that video game idea, mm -hmm. if Minecraft had all of these assets sitting on a public blockchain, so my son plays Minecraft, he logs ungodly amount of hours playing, he acquires, he earns all these rewards. If all of that was built on a public ledger, those would be portable assets into other games, presumably because the infrastructure for those assets will be well-defined. On the other end of that, the new platform, all of those standards will be very, very public and very clear. It's like doing any implementation. 
where you got to move data from point A to point B. You know, that normalization of the data, that cleanliness of that data is a really big lift for most organizations. And so when everything's on a public ledger and data has a very specific place and it's all very, you know, kind of structured, it makes it a lot easier to move it over. And then there's also other things around IP rights management. I think with all this AI stuff happening where they're just scraping all these images and all these words. And, you know, I do think that there could be a role with traceability of some of that content that goes in, but this is, you know, this is five years down the road. Who are some of the companies that are really making headway right now? The brands that a lot of people talk about Reddit, Reddit had a really successful NFT launch. So they launched avatars. So when you, if you have a Reddit profile, you have a little avatar that sits in your profile image. They've minted 5 million NFTs across 4 million unique wallets. What does that mean? So that means that there's 5 million digital assets that were created. So 5 million unique avatars. They were created on Reddit. Like if I'm a Reddit contributor, I I go on and I can create an avatar and now I own that or like. Now you own that. Right. Now you can trade that. You have to pay for it. Uh, some of them are free. Some of them you paid for. Why would anyone want to buy that? So I'm literally, when we get off this, I'm going on Reddit and I'm going to try to create one of these things. You know, it's a status thing. All of a sudden I'll have this avatar and like, it's like, it can be like a funky picture of me or something. I'm like, what is it? Like what's inside of it? Just like my digital image now or asset that I created on Reddit and someone's going to like buy it or rent it or. So correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but the value in these ones and I could be off base here, but part of Reddit, right? You earn what they call karma by posting and sharing and, you know, commenting and doing all these things that show you're an active member of the community. And so you build up status in that way, right? And aren't the NFTs just an added layer of kind of like verification of your profile and your contributions and everything like that? Is that that just next layer on top of this? Correct. So it's a status thing. It is a, you get rewards, rewards accrue to those avatars. And then kind of back to this idea of you can monetize your contribution, monetize, you know, then you'll be able to trade those presumably for a higher rate. What kind of rewards do I get? Like I get invited to parties or I get like discounts on products or. So Starbucks, that's the case. So you look at the Starbucks Odyssey. So Starbucks has launched an NFT program you participate in Starbucks, you acquire these stamps, you accrue enough stamps and that unlocks different perks, like going to Costa Rica or, you know, doing whatever. Why is it any better though? Like why, what, what's wrong with their existing rewards program? Mm-hmm. That's my question. Well, I just asked yeah. you, I'll steal it from you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the uplift for them? I think there's a couple things. So if you're a loyal Starbucks customer and you've acquired all of these stamps and you now have the opportunity to go on some of these trips or redeem some of these rewards and you just don't have the ability to take advantage of that or you just would rather have the cash, you can go and you can sell that opportunity to somebody else in a very easy way where Starbucks doesn't have to be an arbiter of that transaction. You know, There's no new business model being spun up to like help facilitate this third party marketplace. You have these very low cost marketplaces that now enable a peer to peer transaction. 
And that is a, a big unlock in and of itself. And the fees on those marketplaces are, are just, they're a race to the bottom. I mean, there's a couple ones that were there early and they have great VC money behind them and they've marketed really well. There's some lesser known ones where it's, you know, virtually free to trade amongst people in a, in a trusted space. I think it's one of the biggest problems with blockchain, to be honest, is, and it's kind of Eric to your point, like because all of this work is open source and because all of this technology is just very easy to implement, there's not a lot of defensibility. And so you have like a whole bunch of new tech that's just being deployed and tech kind of becomes this commoditized piece of the whole puzzle. And so one of the things that I've become really like I have strong convictions around is this idea of brand and experience because when everything else is kind of gone down to anybody can stand it up, what boils down to is who delivers the best brand and like the best kind of emotion from their transaction and who has the best experience around that transaction and that loyalty of that customer, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I'm watching all this happen. I could, you know, I could literally go on YouTube, find a marketplace. There's a marketplace called Zora. I could literally launch my own marketplace in an hour and the whole world could start transacting on that. I don't have to do anything more than just put it up. And that's a big difference, I think, than what we've seen in, in the technologies of the past. What would you put up on your marketplace? Me personally, I'm working on an art marketplace with a couple of like really big art culture people that have been in the business for 30 years. So that's where, you know, I'm actively doing this, but it goes back to brand. It goes back to trust, goes back to network. Andy Tho's marketplace might be a barren, a barren wasteland. Are we going to be in a world or maybe we already are, you, you tell me where digital art is worth as much as the real thing. I think there's some mediums that digital art makes the most sense, like generative art. What is, what is generative art? Like, I know what it is, but like for our audience. Yeah. So it's AI, it's code, it's code-based art. So code-based art, you can't hang it on your wall per se. Like it's a hard thing to transact to like show provenance. Like I created this set of code and I'm going to sell you my code. And that idea of kind of traceability of that ownership to that buyer is really hard without a blockchain. So generative art didn't really have a good platform for kind of monetization. And in a blockchain, that's a very native transaction. So I think that makes sense. My friends and I opened a, a digital art gallery in West Hollywood. What's it called? It's called Nomad Gallery. How big is it? 2,500 square feet. Cool. Is it retail space? Like I walk in off the sidewalk yeah. and I'm in your digital art gallery? Yeah, I mean, it's a killer location. Like the Marquee Tower Records, it's literally four doors down. So I walk in and there's digital art on the wall? Yep. Now, can I buy one? You could buy the NFTs. We've been doing more like pop-up shows than like a gallery just constantly showing retail stuff. So the last show that we did, we're pretty big on hybrid as a concept. So we had prints, we had sculptures, and then we had NFTs. And for that show, the revenue that came out of that show was pretty evenly split. Is it working? Yeah, I think that, I think the gallery is serving the purpose that we wanted it to serve the purpose of. 
which is give us a place to network and pull all the right people together and put on amazing shows and have a really good time. And so for all of those outcomes, we did really well. I think in this year, the idea will be a little bit more retail-esque. So trying to do a little less of the art show, a little more of the, you know, how do we advocate for all of the things that are digital? Like a lot of the NFT world is an offshoot of the metaverse AR, VR world. Because mm-hmm. those, you know, if those worlds are really going to prolificate, this idea of digital asset has a much stronger meaning in a much more integrated digital experience. And so I think we'll probably pivot a little bit more towards bringing awareness to all of the different products in the, that are catering to the metaverse economy. Was it a complicated space? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, uh, I learned a long time ago, like, if something doesn't make sense to me in the technology world out of the gate, I should actually pay very close attention to it. Um, I remember when I first saw my first web browser, I was in a coffee shop in the East Village, and I had this friend of mine, James Healy. And he had jumped into the internet world early. Like this would have been like, I don't know, 95 or six or something like that. And he showed me the first web browser and, and I'm, you know, I'm an above average intelligence. And I looked at it and I could not figure it out. I was like, okay, maybe I, I don't I don't see how this thing could be that powerful. I mean, how absurdly naive was that reaction? <laughs> I also do remember, though, when I first heard the concept of the cloud, which, you know, Andy and Aaron and all of us from Blue Wolf were very, we were early on that. Thank goodness. That made sense, right? And that totally made sense to me. But I'm just struggling to figure out how the whole metaverse, crypto, blockchain, NFT, like how this starts to evolve into a story where, and I think it will, where we're going to get more digital efficiency, where we're going to have more trust, where there will be more avenues for commerce, where hopefully there are more avenues for socioeconomic mobility. I think it's big enough together where that's going to happen. I also will say this, and this is just me speaking, I hope we get out of the world where we're bombarded with advertisements all day long as a way to pay for this digital world. Why have the Facebooks of the world and the, you know, all these social media companies, like they dove headfirst into an advertising model as a way to make money. And in the short term, it's certainly worked, but it's been a fucking burden on all of us. And they still don't know who I am. I still get the worst ads served up to me all the time. Maybe this whole world is going to help solve that. Maybe my digital identity is something that I will give up to certain brands or certain trusted third parties. So they do know me. So my life can be more efficient in the digital world because it's incredibly inefficient. If you saw my desktop right now, I have like 90 different browsers open and I've got passwords all over the fucking place. And, you know, get me off on my laptop and I'll go for a run because at least I feel better than trying to wade through the digital world. So maybe there's something there. I think there is something. I think you're onto something. (laughs) I think you're onto something. (laughs) I just always come back to the question, you know, are we gonna be on the computer more or less? The answer is yes. And do I think that today's internet has the infrastructure 
to really deliver a really good experience that I re really truly own? And I think the answer is no. And so I think there's got to be a lot of engineering that's got to happen around digital identity, which by the way, the World Wide Web has been working on this for like, you know, since the onset, like this isn't a new concept. I just think blockchain has a little bit of a, you know, an edge that can help bring some new tech to the idea of digital identity. I think the idea of first party data versus third party data, I think NFTs have a, a big meaningful role in that. That's been a huge shift in the last two years, right? Like it's Yeah. I mean, if you're a brand and you have NFTs out there and you know who has those NFTs because you know the wallets and presumably you can do some a little bit of work to trace the wallet to an email, that's a really strong piece of first party data. Uh, there's a local um, CRM shop here in Indianapolis that I've been working with. And he's like, look, not only is it the ultimate opt-in, but you get tremendous insight into how long have they had that asset? Did they buy it when it was first released? Did they buy it on the secondary? Are they flipping that asset a lot? Just the insights around all of the public data that relates to that NFT that's correlated to that brand that that one individual owns, you can do a lot of experience design work based on that person and that persona. Well, it completely changes, it changes marketing too, right? Like it actually, marketing becomes less of a opaque function. Yeah, you get a much better view into who your customers are when all of their first party data is just open and into the public. And I totally appreciate that there's gonna be privacy problems all over the place with this. And uh, I think there's smart people that are working on that at the moment. I think about it this way. And one of Salesforce's co-founders, Parker Harris, does a great job of describing this. Like, I just want things to run in my life. I provide a lot of information to the various brands that I interact with. I provide a lot of information to my bank. I provide a lot of information to my trusted advisors, like my accountant, or I, I don't know, just and I want that stuff to just run my life, right? And I want and I want AI to play the right role in that. Uh, Parker talks about next generation CRM. And you know, current CRM is still a fairly manual exercise where you have end users and you have inputs and data entry and and you're collecting a shitload of data that's also automated. And the way he describes next generation CRM is that stuff should just run itself. And you should be able to tweak your preferences and you should be able to tweak, you, know, you should be able to evaluate how things are going with this digital world and, and direct it in a certain way, but you shouldn't have to spend a lot of time on the screen, you know, taking up valuable hours where you could be out stargazing with Aaron. Exactly. But you think about some of those big issues like, you know, global warming or climate change, whatever you want to call it, like. I do think these technologies, Andy, and, and there, there is a better internet out there that we're definitely onto something here. And I think the hype curve has been like, at least in the short term, has receded, which is probably a good thing. Um, That's a great thing. Like There's kid, so much scam. Yeah, a lot of scam, a lot of mistrust, like this whole FTX thing. Like I, I just read the other day that he posted something saying that there was nothing fraudulent going on. I don't know. Maybe he's right. But like... <laughs> That thing was crazy. And what happens when things like that happen is everyone like blankets the entire blockchain crypto world and says, oh my God, it's all a scam. Well, that's not true, right? At all. These are extremely powerful technologies. That's why I describe it as a whole economy. I mean, there's facets of it that are very scammy. 
but you know we see that with GameStop and all these other stocks that are yeah. have the same social engineering behind them that create their own disillusionment and kind of cult culture around a price engineering. But you know it's no different. I mean, it's the same VCs that are pumping those prices that are pumping NFTs. I think that there's some enterprise blockchain projects that don't get enough. Uh, you know, part of my conviction was coming out of IBM. Yeah. I tell everybody I talk to, I say, IBM is the most amazing place. Like you want to know where the puck's going to be. Right. Just look at what IBM is focused on. And that's probably where everybody else will be making money in 10 years and IBM will be on to the next thing. I think IBM is a very smart company and they invested very heavily in blockchain and they've done some amazing things with Hyperledger and some other open source technologies. Like I think the, what is it? Walgreens can using blockchain has traceability down to the leafy green, like in Peru, you know, if there's a green that has some sort of contaminant, they can pinpoint where that is kind of all the other uh, leafy greens that traveled along with that via the blockchain technologies. Now that's a very different blockchain use case. That's like a core enterprise, like not a lot of public ledger. Uh, with that, but the technology itself is very robust. But in that use case, you have all the different third parties that are part of that supply chain have access to it. So yes, it's not public, but those corporate use cases of blockchain are real. I, mem I remember the shipping example when they talked about like how many different hands goods actually touch when they m move around the world, right? Yep. And so you create a blockchain now where all of those parties have access to the same exact transparent information. I just don't know who the winners are right now. That's the thing with blockchain. I don't know that the intermediaries are going to be the winners. I mean, the whole intention of this is that, I shouldn't say the whole intention, a big byproduct of this is that you don't need the intermediaries. You don't need the people that have facilitated the deal. You can go peer to peer. And so the consumers and the creators at its most basic definition of each can transact with much lower fees. So there's a complete disintermediation going on here where the middleman gets cut out, which yep. I think in a long, you know, in the evolution of mankind, that's a good thing. We want to incent creators. We want to incent risk takers. We don't always want to incent middlemen who just happen to be in the right place at the right time. There's a long horizon of that disintermediation that's going to happen which is a good thing for us. Do you guys listen to the All In podcast? No. With Chamath, some of the VC guys, they're, you know, second best podcast next to your guys's, but it's a good one. Some Silicon Valley VC guys, they talk about the winner of the AI movement is who's got the best proprietary data. Sure. You know, that's pretty straightforward, right? So back to CRM and customer engagement, like whoever can capture the best data sets around that. You know, I'd settle right now for especially large companies, again, getting back to Eric's point about companies still not knowing who you are, I'd settle for them just getting a handle on the basics because that's still not happening. We talk about all these amazing things that are coming out right now when so many companies still haven't caught up to the basics that we had 15 years ago <laughs> because yeah. I called Marriott yesterday to update a reservation guys and I had to dial in my reservation number and then I got on the phone with someone they still asked me my name they asked me my reservation number they asked me to do and they didn't have to do that they did not have to do that so I love 
how many people are taking these new technologies and applying them in so many interesting ways. But in terms of mass adoption and utility and, and all of these things, I think we're further away than we think we are. Well, I think it's getting worse. Yeah, it is getting worse. Just more noise in the system. I think we're getting more complicated as consumers. I'm very bullish on you know CDP as a practice, just because I think that we as consumers are our expectations are getting way higher daily. And I think the complexity of all the different places where I can spend my time digitally is getting very hard to track. I think CDP is going to be a big unlock. I think you couple CDP with AI and there you go. There's your, it just works for you. AI feeds automation. It's only as good as the data that it is able to leverage. And I think where most organizations are stuck right now, and this gets into building great customer experiences is their data is all over the place. This whole move to first party data, I think is going to be a great thing because it's actually requiring marketers to really truly know their customers without being able to just act on any little piece of information, but it's a long haul. And, you know, we're talking about AI and, and blockchain and all these different technologies. It's a challenge right now for organizations just to know their customer period. And I, I agree with that. Aaron. What's it worth to them though, right? Like what is it worth to Marriott to give you a perfect experience at your fingertips? If you need to change a reservation or just simple little stuff, what's it worth it to them? Are there enough options out there? Can you leave Marriott tomorrow and go somewhere else quickly and have is one of our challenges as a society right now, not to get really political that we have too many monopolies out there. Oh, I think that's a huge problem. But what a great use case for a public ledger that has composable data that says, hey, I'm a Marriott Gold member and the other hotels can now market to me because they can see that I'm a Marriott Hotel Gold member. And so presumably my experience should get elevated. How does that benefit Marriott? Though? It doesn't. That's the whole point. Right. Why would Marriott want to put that information in a public ledger? They don't. But if every other hotel does, or if the hotels of tomorrow say, ah, we're good, this is our customers, market to them, I don't care. They love us. Exactly. This reminds me, and I, I swear this ties in, this reminds me of a podcast episode I listened to uh, on the history of chocolate. And there were three primary manufacturers of chocolate in England. And at one point... Because one of the manufacturers wanted to emphasize how pure their chocolate was and how there were only two ingredients, the, the chocolate and the, the sugar or whatever it was, they went to the government and said, hey, I think that you should require everyone to list their ingredients on their packaging. And they partnered with the government in, in the interest of you know public safety and information and everything like that, right? So are we going to see that type of lobbying in the future regarding NFTs and that public ledger and everything else in terms of how you're conducting business? I could see something like that happening again, but in the digital space. So Marriott might not have a choice in terms of allowing that to be on the public record or something like that. I don't know how it would work, but that's the first thing that popped into my head was this other example, you know, a hundred years ago of this is when the first ingredient labels popped up. It's all about adoption. There's uh, these concepts of soul bound tokens. So you have non-fungible, which means distinct. And then you have soul bound, which means it's stuck to that wallet. So whomever is on the receiving end of that token, 
that wallet now is stuck with that token. And so the idea of like credentials, you know, college certificates, all these other things that it's really hard to get verification, that wallet can then get the token and then it's it's a public domain, easy way to verify that this wallet, this individual tied to this wallet has all of these credentials. There's no fact checking there. It's also a great use case for um, home titles and car titles, like anything that already has this public record, you know, just simply making that more public digitally and transparent digitally. There's no reason why we shouldn't do that, but it'd be those kind of adoption things that would lead people to have the wallets that would then lead the, the loyalty points to come onto the wallets that would then lead the statuses. You know, it's that kind of adoption curve. The breakthrough for me in this discussion is there's power that can be given to consumers. There's power that can be given to citizens around the world or in this country that we don't have today. You call Marriott, you're stuck, Aaron, because your points are there or they own all the hotels in the area where you're trying to stay and they can just mm -hmm. treat you like shit and they know it. So they don't invest in your experience because you're coming anyhow. And it's about actually giving power to the consumers. And if as consumers, we have more power, it will elevate more products. It will create more competitive marketplaces, right? Like our society works, at least in this country, because of competition. That is, you know, the government doesn't own anything. It's a free marketplace and we should open up more opportunities for more brands to do better things. And we get locked in, right? I mean, I'll give you another example. So I'm out in Idaho right now and I had to get my son, Charlie, back to school in California. So the weather was bad. I couldn't find a flight. So I went to Hertz. I've been a Hertz customer for 35 years. I've been a part of Hertz Gold since they first invented it. They've got all my points. They know who I am. They still treat me like shit. But I rented a car in Idaho at Hertz. H-E-R-T-Z, yellow background, black letters, same font, everything. They took my gold number, went and picked up the car, and I drove Charlie to San Francisco. It was a great drive, by the way. I mean, I kind of did it as like an unsuspecting dad because I figured like 11 hours in a car with Charlie was better than going through two airports. We had a great time. Get to San Francisco, spend a couple of days there. The intention all along was just to drop the car at San Francisco and take a flight back here. And I was about to book a flight to come back here. I was going to try to leave the next day. And I said, I said, well, I better call Hertz and let him know I'm going to drop this car in San Francisco. Because I never told him I was going to do it, which maybe that's my problem. But like, come on, like, that seems easy, right? They're everywhere. This is ubiquitous brand. So I call up Hertz and I said, hey, just FYI, I'm going to drop the car at the San Francisco airport tomorrow. I want to let you know that. Just out of curiosity, like, how much is that going to cost me? I figured they'd charge me some drop-off fee. And the guy said, well, you can't do that. And he was a nice, nice enough guy. I said, well, why not? Sure, I can. I'll do it right now. I'll go drop it. Like, what do you mean I can't do it? And he said, no, you can't do that. You rented that, that car from an affiliate of ours. We don't actually own that location. You have to call them, right? H-E-R-T-Z, yellow background, same font, took my gold number. So I call Hertz in Idaho and I said, hi, how are you? They picked up on one ring, a nice lady at the desk there at the airport. I rented a car there. I'm planning on returning it in San Francisco to, to Hertz. I'm not gonna return to Avis or Sixth 
or nationwide is nationwide no that's a bank um <laughs> that's national insurance. <laughs> it, like i'm i'm returning to hertz h-e-r-t-z you know oj simpson running through the airports like you guys aren't uh, you've been with me forever and she said well we we're not part of hertz i'm like what was this like fraud what are you talking about like am i imagining things she said no we're an affiliate you cannot return the car in san francisco you have to return it back at our location in idaho and i'm like well okay, I am going to return it in San Francisco. <laughs> I go, what are you going to charge me? She said, $10,000, 10 grand to leave the car in San Francisco. So I, of course I put my tail between my legs and got up at four o'clock the next morning. <laughs> Freaking Idaho. But it just was amazing to me. Like this global brand, cars everywhere, I'm a longtime customer. She had no idea of that. The guy I talked to at her said, no, like that person literally, when they log into their screen, it should say, Eric Barrage has spent $762,000 with Hertz over the last 25 years. It should say it in big, big numbers, right? It doesn't. But to take it a step further, like in your world where the consumer has more leverage or power or, or options, right? Let's use a uh, non-threatening word. You know, how many people in San Francisco would have driven that car back to Idaho for $500? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's a great point. Like there's a marketplace there. There's, yeah. okay, no problem, Mr. Baird. Sure. Yeah. We're going to charge you this. Be on your way. There are so many commerce opportunities that we've yet to unlock in all yes. of these brands. That because they're, these systems don't talk to each other and because there's not trust between the affiliate and the main brand. I don't give a shit if they're an affiliate or an LLC on their own. They can be whatever they want to be. But as a Hertz customer who's trusting that brand, treat me like a trusted customer and there are ways to do it. There's probably a whole yeah. business model Hertz could launch around drop off, you know, dropped cars. You know, I don't know. It's just Yeah, I think marketplaces are going to prolificate. I think right now you look at market, you have Facebook Marketplace, eBay, like just think about like Etsy, probably like uh, Amazon, maybe there's like 10, 10 to 20, you could just rattle off the top of your head. I think it's going to get, and they generalize over large categories. I think there's going to be a marketplace for everything. My digital identity, if I actually owned it, right? If I truly owned it. And if I said, I'll give it to you, but to give it to you, I also, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I also want to make sure that as I'm doing business with you, your competitors know that and they can contribute to the action here. Like, I don't know, like that's kind of where you're going, right? Like hundred percent. That seems so foreign to us today, but that is actually what we want as consumers. I don't want to be marketed to them. Like I don't want to get spam from them. But if all of a sudden Avis stepped up and said, fuck, drop the car in San Francisco, we'll take it. I want <laughs> right. that. Right. right. Like, <laughs> I'll deliver that experience for you. I right. want you as a customer. Yeah. 100%. Right. It's portability. Yeah. It's a big business model shift. You know, you think about like defensibility as a factor into a multiple, right? As a business. And whether you're going to invest in that business because it's defensible and you're going to lose a lot of that. So it's going to be a really big shift in how businesses are funded and founded. And But again, I come back to the big things that's going to differentiate. It's going to be brand and it's going to be, you know, who can deliver operationally the best experience. Yeah. 
that benefits society that makes things work better you could take it into any industry take it into healthcare right like yep. i don't want a second opinion i want the right opinion but i want privacy too so how do you navigate that right that's where there's a lot of investment happening right now so there's new tech there's new technologies on top of the blockchain technology uh, these idea of zk rollups i also think that there's going to be like app based privacy so like we'll all have a digital identity and then some of like there will be a HIPAA blockchain where all of that is very, and it's kind of like the hyperledger idea of the leafy green. You know, there's going to be a whole network of people that have access to that. All right. I'm a buyer now. I'm going to, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I think it's just, I think it's the mindset. Consumers can have more control. The internet can do better. And the big winners here are the marketers and the brand creators, the experienced designers truly the, the critical thinkers. I think those are the people that win. I, you know, I go back to um, steam. I think in the steam, this is where the A can really shine. Right. Cause a lot of the other work gets, um, you know, commoditized. Yeah. It's commoditized. It's transactions. It's right. yeah, I agree. So Andy, we're going to switch gears just a little bit as our usual last question, but what book have you read recently or, you know, at some point in your life that's made a really big impact on you? Just no business books, be fiction, nonfiction. You know, this was probably the one question I thought about the most before this podcast. Like whenever I thought about doing this, I was like, what am I going to say for this? Most of my reading is to my five and my two-year-old. There's a book called uh, We Are All Different. We Are All the Same. Nice. That one, we come back to that a lot. We Are All Different. We Are All the Same. Who wrote it, you know? It's, it's one of those library books that has been like in the system for decades. I'll make sure to list the author's name in the show notes and everything. So anyone who is interested in getting it, check it out from your local library, support your local library. It's very, very important. That's just my plug for a public institution with incalculable value. 100%. Put that as a New Year's resolution to go to the library just a couple more times this year everyone because they are so so important and that's just my personal thing i'm there multiple times a week <laughs> um but if we're sharing children's books my personal favorite that my niece and nephew love and i read to them all the time is ada twist scientist and it is a fabulous book about curiosity and perseverance and taking your ideas and not being afraid to test them out and those are all really great qualities that make wonderful scientists and explorers and it's a beautiful beautiful book so i definitely recommend that one too nice i haven't read a children's book in a while but they all have the best lessons that's for sure andy we just want to say thank you so much for coming on this was a really fascinating conversation and i know that i personally uh, learned a lot about nfts and blockchain and all of that and I'm coming away with a bit of a better understanding, which I really appreciate. So it's exciting. I would say this, Andy, let's keep talking about it and give us some sources that like we can publish where people can learn more and become more familiar with this world. Like I think now that the hype is like died down, it's like the perfect time to learn and educate yourself on the power of this future digital infrastructure, whatever it becomes. Yeah. I have some great stuff. I'll email it over. So what do you think, Aaron? Do you like Andy? Should we cut him? <laughs> you can cut him out.
No, no, we're we're keeping Andy. We're we're keeping him right. in the circle and on the episode. No, that was really great. And I have to say, I am really unfamiliar with the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency NFTs. And so that for me was really illuminating in a lot of ways and has gotten me to start thinking a little bit differently about that whole world. Because I do think that we really are at that new frontier stage. And it definitely feels like the wild, wild west right now in terms of what's possible and what people are trying to do with it, which is both exciting and a little unnerving in places. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, we live in this day and age where data is, is really, really, really valuable. It's becoming more and more valuable as organizations figure out how to organize it better. It's becoming more valuable as first party data becomes really the only way that you can market. And we talked a little bit about that. It's easy for me to visualize a world where the decentralization of data and the control of data through that decentralization becomes everyone's business. I can visualize that world. I don't, I am not comfortable with brands owning my data. I'm not comfortable with the government owning my data. I want to own my own identity. I mean, I talk to my kids about this all the time and it, they don't really, it doesn't register with them. You know, do you care that TikTok sells your data? They don't really care. But I do believe there's going to be a point in time where as data becomes more and more valuable, we are going to want to own our own data. And if the world wants to market to Aaron Acevedo, if the world wants to be opened up into her world, they have to pay for that. And you have to trust them. I think that is where this ultimately is all going to go, which I'm glad that Andy really touched upon. Because we are living in a world today where data is everywhere. It's a mess. It's abused. You get marketed at left and right in a very poor way. Your data is being sold. Someone told me recently that if you know someone's home address and their birth date, you can just about figure out everything about them online. Oh, wow. That's kind of screwed up. Yeah, that's definitely unnerving. Right. And we share that information with companies all the time with really no insight into how they're protecting it, right? Right. I would love to be able to choose exactly how much data I need to give you because for so many things, why on earth do you, company, need to know my birthday? Right. This is not a restricted product based on age. Why on earth should I be giving this information to you? I think that that's a really great example of, you know, I should be able to pick and choose. Okay, I want you to contact me by email. And here is a shipping address if I ordered something from you. But beyond that, I don't see why you're going to need more than this from me. And I think one of the concepts of blockchain, and again, I'm a neophyte when it comes to understanding this stuff. But one of the concepts that is easy for me to understand is that if something has to be validated in multiple systems before it's true, it is inherently less open to fraud, to control, to abuse. I think about our like our modern day election system, which is not typically a fraudulent system. Why? Because elections in this country are managed at the local precinct level and they don't really talk to each other. 
you know, there's not a single point of failure. No one can get in and completely upend our election system by hacking into some centralized system. Right. It, as you mentioned, it's a decentralized network of information. Joanne Barridge, who's 84 years old and volunteers at the local precinct every single election, she's making sure everything's ticked and tied before it goes into the broader world. Um, yeah. I'm talking about federal elections, really, but even even at the state level, right? So I love thinking about that analogy because blockchain replicates that. And I think it's got a lot of valid use cases. And I think it will automate and make our lives more efficient too. Like you think about some of the government agencies that we deal with, or you think about healthcare, think about all the paperwork we fill out, you think about the lines we still wait in. In a world where systems are trusted, in a world where systems are efficient, in a world where everyone can contribute to them, but everyone can also play a role in making sure they're secure, our lives become more efficient. This is our chance as humanity where a lot of the stuff that was the grunt work is going away. Machines are going to do the grunt work, folks. I mean, and that's a scary proposition. But there's a positive side to it as well. Like, what can humanity become? How much more creative can we get? Thanks for listening to our interview with Andy Tho. We'll share the resources and books we mentioned in the show notes at customerobsessed.net. And if you're a fan of the show, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a customer-obsessed moment.